Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so thrilled to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author, and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together, and thankfully, we have some great people to help us along the way. Now, studies continually show that people who are raised with religion are happier, healthier, more giving. They have a strong sense of connection to their past and their community. Now, most Americans are raised with some kind of religion, and yet many have started to leave their religion that they grew up with for many different personal reasons. But if religion makes us happier and healthier and more connected, how do people cope with that void that may be left after leaving their religion? And what happens to the kids who are raised without religion? For all of these very deep questions, we are turning to my next guest, Catherine Osmond. Now, Catherine Osmond is the author of Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular Age. She is an award-winning journalist who has worked in publishing for more than 25 years, including as a senior editor at National Geographic. Isn't that so interesting? For which she rode a donkey through the desert of Israel and Jordan for several weeks. Her essays and articles have been widely published in such venues as National Geographic, The New York Times, and Salon. Grace Without God was named a Best Book of the Year by Publishers Weekly and Spirituality and Health. Now, I'm not surprised because it is beautifully written and thought-provoking. You can learn more about Catherine and her book in the show notes of this podcast, as well as on her website, www. K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-O-Z-M-E-N-T dot com. So thrilled you are here with us today. So Catherine, welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you so much for having me. Well, before we get into everything, for those who haven't had the opportunity to meet you and read this book, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and how this book and journey of Grace Without God came about? Those are great questions, and they are related, because I get up in the morning for my three kids primarily, I mean, after coffee, of course. Of course. Um, my book began because my kids had a lot of big questions and I didn't know how to answer them. And I think that they were questions I hadn't answered for myself, but I kind of let that slide. But once my kids started asking them, I needed to find answers. And so I went on a three year long journey to answer life's biggest questions. And the result is the book. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Well, I know in reading your book, you talk about the nuns. So what are you referring to there? And why are their numbers rising so dramatically? 
Sure. So the nuns, and that's spelled N-O-N-E-S, not nuns like Catholic nuns. (laughs) Um, It's actually quite the opposite. The nuns um, is a shorthand term for people who check none of the above when they're asked what their religious affiliation is. Mm. And for decades, um, you know, people surveyed Americans and asked them, what are you? Are you Jewish? Are you Methodist? Are you Catholic? Um, and about five or six percent of Americans would say, I'm none of the above, a.k.a. the nuns. Uh, and it starting in the late 80s, um, that number started to kind of slowly tick up until about uh, five or six years ago, the Pew Foundation released some really staggering statistics showing that 20 percent of Americans were now religiously unaffiliated or nuns. Mm. And among those, 33% of millennials, so much younger generations driving this trend. Those numbers have gone up even since that original figure, which I cited in my book. It's now about 25% of all American adults Mm. and about 40% of millennials. And so suddenly we have a really changing fabric in our society and it affects our parenting and, you know, childhood and, and family community and on all kinds of ways that we're just starting to understand. And so my book was a look at, well, what do you do when you leave that structure of organized religion and you have to kind of recreate some of those things that you used to get through church or synagogue or your mosque, whatever it was that you participated in? How are parents these days making sense of all the things religion used to help us make sense of? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And there's are some those are some really unique challenges that uh, clearly uh, a quarter of Americans are now going through and asking themselves. So, can you give us a little bit more of an idea of what are some of the unique challenges? of raising kids outside of a religious framework. Right, right. And I should add that, you know, you would ask what's driving it. A lot of people are um, leaving institutions of all kinds. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of us, and that creates a lot of issues. I mean, it's wonderful to be free and you don't have to do exactly what your parents did. You can marry whoever you want. And and there's a a real liberation and you you can sense the the American spirit of of individualism in that um, desire. But when we do leave those institutions, we leave a huge um, amount of support. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's connection to one another and we sort of retreat into our own lives and our own individualistic urges and our or maybe just our own families or maybe maybe the block on our street maybe not mm-hmm. and so I think in many ways what I tried to look at in the book was what are the things organized religion has provided for millennia um, good and bad I'm, I'm more looking at sort of the support things that it it survives provides obviously we can talk about the negativity of religion but my book wasn't really about that it was really about how did religion bring people together and mm-hmm. keep them away and so it, I touch on several areas community and belonging probably being the most important um, rituals um, and the sense of being connected to something larger than ourselves that gives us meaning in our lives and so in many ways um, newly secular parents raising secular kids when they in fact were raised religiously are having to create those things on their own 
and they're having to look outside of religious institutions to do it. And so my my book is really going around the country and interviewing people about how they do that and, and looking at examples of people sort of on the leading edge of, of secular parenting in the United States. Mm, so interesting. I'm curious, in your book, you talk about the challenge of answering some of those big questions you mentioned when we first started talking. You know, that the big questions that children have, they are, you know, these are the times when, you know, you mentioned in your book, like many parents sort of, they typically fall back on religion to answer. And I'm thinking of like the big questions like who made us and how did we get here and why are we here and where do we go when we die? And you talk about in your book that your own son was asking some of these questions and life sort of falls away. Your busyness of the day, the the thoughts of making dinner and getting your children ready from one activity to the next. And this has certainly happened to me and I'm sure to our listening audience. You know, you sort of stop in your tracks when you hear that question, like, am I going to die? Or, you know, what, what? how did we get here in the first place? So how do you answer those types of questions you're talking about this secular parenting so how might somebody answer some of these types of questions when they do come up and we don't necessarily have the stories or the written psalms to to fall back on yeah and i will say that this book began with an absolute failure on my part to do that mm-hmm. my son and i were up one night it was a friday night we lived across the street from a greek orthodox church and he called me to the window about 10 p.m. and said, Mama, you got to come see this. And I raced to the window, and there was this beautiful ritual going outside our window. There were people holding candles. There was this elaborate um, sort of like chariot draped in flowers. There was a priest, and, and the parishioners were singing back and forth in prayer. And after they left, they stopped, and they went into the church. My son said, what was that? You know, he's probably about nine years old. And I said, well, it was a religious ritual. And he said, well, why don't we do that? And I said, we're not Greek Orthodox. And he said, well, what are we? And I just blurted out, we're nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had left religion. I was raised Presbyterian. My husband had left Judaism, and we were just raising them secular without much thought but that was the moment I decided I need to raise them secular with much thought Mm -hmm. (laughs) I need to have an answer and when my kids say things like do you believe in God or what happens when we die I had to stop sort of shunting them off to brush their teeth or or all the ways I was kind of ignoring the questions because I hadn't really answered them for myself and Mm -hmm. so part of the journey I think parents should take is one within themselves to decide what is it you believe and maybe their kids questions will prompt them to really kind of figure it out um but one of the answers i came to by the end of the book is there are no answers to these questions oftentimes the questions beget more questions and so when my kids ask me you know now do you believe in god i'll say you know i've been thinking about that question all my life and Right now, um, I guess you could call me agnostic because I'm not sure. Your grandmother believes in God. You know, your aunt believes in God. And so I give them a way in which they can see that all of those beliefs are okay. And that if they end up wanting to believe in God, just because their mother doesn't necessarily, that's okay. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was really important for me to see after all the research and all the talking I'd done and really 
self-interrogation to figure out that, you know, none of us really know for sure. And so why not legitimize that to our children that when they ask, it's okay not to say absolutely this or absolutely that. It's okay to live in the questions. And that sort of became the fuel that that drove me throughout the book is just living in those questions. Mm, What a beautiful way of parenting and allowing your children permission to choose his or her own path that your way is one way and perhaps your your family your mother your sister your brother might do things differently and they're all okay it's the the path that you choose i i think that is really beautiful and not just in this case but in in many areas of our life to just shine some high beams on that and say you, there's one way to do things in, in my world, but there's another way in somebody else's. And, and it doesn't have to be just one way for everybody. One size yeah. doesn't fit all. I mean, then it allows for really interesting discussions. And, and I think a way of looking at the world with curious curiosity, mm-hmm. always, mm-hmm. Um, not painting things in a broad Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So not looking at our children as sort of vessels we need to fill with our opinions and your our own theories of how they must live their lives, but giving them questions to consider and yes, giving them thoughts that we might have about them, but giving them the permission to maybe think differently or explore them on their own. Exactly. Yes. So in that same vein, I just want to push a little bit more and ask you, when a child who is being raised in the secular age, if they ask something like, where do we go when we die? How might a parent answer that type of a question when they don't have religion to fall back on? I know that when we have interviewed Joe Primo in the past who specializes in how to talk to kids about death, he actually says, you know, look, you people may have religion, and that is a wonderful thing to explore when you're talking about death, but it really isn't the first point of contact when a child is asking these questions because often kids are asking, you know, about death, they want to know the concrete statements about death. What, what happens when we die? Who dies? Am I going to die? Is this one going to die? That we need to be more scientific. What's your view of how we might answer questions about death? And that's a big one that I think all parents struggle with, especially if they can't offer something like heaven or God, you know, in their heart, they, they don't believe that. Of course, you can say, well, some people believe this, which is always my approach. Um, You know, you can offer that and let them maybe they need to hold that for a while. And maybe they'll let go of that someday. But maybe at a certain age, developmentally, it's helpful to to have heaven if, you know, if they want to use that. Um, but, you know, I turned to a lot of secular humanism in the, in the book, which I discovered on this journey. And I talked to my kids about how, you know, the importance of life is, is the time we're here on earth. That's all we know that we can control. And that, you know, to live forever is to live through the way you affect others and the way you are in community and in family and in the things that you do in your life. Um, 
is heaven on earth in a way. I mean, that is how we pass on um, our lives and, and the meaning of our lives to others. And so it's really more of a focus on on what we can control and what we can see. Um, and when they talk about death, and my daughter was saying that the other day, and I said, well, you could think about it this way. You know, she was talking about um, pets dying. And, yes. and we're thinking about getting a dog, and she's already worried about the dog dying. Of course, of course. Have dog yet. And she said, well, what would happen when the dog died if it didn't go to heaven? And I said, well, you might. We could bury the dog, and maybe the dog would fertilize the ground and the tree near the dog would have, you know, live longer and have more leaves. You know, trying to talk to them a little bit about different ways Mm -hmm. things live on Mm -hmm. so that there's, again, an array of choices that they can pick from. Beautiful. And I love that you're using the the idea of, of nature to, use a more uh, nuanced conversation to understand this idea of death and children having to deal with the death of a pet is a very big one and something that we've interviewed people about as well. I'm curious a little bit more about how you use science and nature as ways to answer questions, but also to help to create a sense of awe and connection that you speak about in the book. So how is that done? Yeah, so I'm science, and I think a lot of this sort of using questions as the way to sort of live your life in the questions is really about the scientific process in a way. Um, it's a little more poetic the way I'm thinking about it, but this idea that we're always questioning and, and we don't, um, you know, one one question leads to another question, which leads to another as we continue to kind of try to untangle life's mysteries. Um, you know, one of the wonderful things I discovered um, toward the end of the book was this whole body of scientific research on awe, um, mostly spearheaded by a wonderful professor named Docker Keltner out at UC Berkeley. And he and his colleagues study the experience of awe whenever we're in nature or have some really overpowering experience, not only does it make us feel um, smaller in comparison to this great thing, it makes us feel more connected to others. And even in their studies, they show that people who've been primed with an awe experience are more generous because time has kind of slowed down for them. And when we're not feeling rushed and we're not worried about ourselves, we feel we can give to others. Mm. We feel we have time to be kind and empathetic. And so one of the wonderful things about that research is it shows us a way to experience what many religious people experience in a religious setting or with a religious experience, which is that overwhelming sense of awe well we can have it in nature or we can have it when we're with you know a a group of people doing some wonderful thing or as I write about in the book we can even have it in a real simple moment Um, I I talk about how my greatest feeling of awe is when I put my youngest daughter to bed and I just I watch her fall asleep and I'm amazed that she's this living growing breathing human being and where did she come from and how is how is she here uh and that is awe and what it does is if we can stop ourselves and let ourselves notice these things we feel deeply connected to the life cycle to the world to nature to other people and um so that that 
that body of, of scientific research was really interesting to me to help understand how to live a meaningful life without religion and how to in, um, get your kids to have that feeling of being part of something larger than themselves if they're not necessarily you know, sitting in a religious, um, you know, sanctuary, um, contemplating God, well, you can do it in other ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow. Uh, you took me on such a journey during that question. I was picturing so many things, sunsets and my own, my own children falling asleep. Those, those moments when you do slow down and I kind of put my hand over my heart and just, stand amazed and and I, I absolutely have been there and I'm sure our our audience has been there as well you know, thinking about those moments maybe the birth of their child or even I had it when when I uh, was in the hospital room with my father he was slipping into a coma and our entire you know family immediate family were all holding hands around him and there was something so I mean, painful, but beautiful about that moment when everything was just about the life cycle and about love and family and connection. And I felt so grateful to be there. So I think that that certainly is a sense of awe, um, that moment where you, you really slow down and time falls away and you're, you're really not thinking about anything else but being right there in the moment. Mm. Beautifully put, yes, exactly. So you just gave us, you know, some important insights about some of the unique challenges of raising kids without a religious framework. You've given us some examples of how you can do that. I would love to get an idea more now of how we can raise kids who have a strong sense of belonging, that mm -hmm. strong sense of meaning and purpose that we're after during a secular age besides the idea of nature and science the awe of things what else can we do as parents and i honestly believe that whether or not we're religious or not we can do these things so what can we do to help our child gain more of a sense of belonging meaning and purpose and i think that's just the most important question for parents these days because i think we are so atomized we are really off in our own worlds and and you know each of us has these idiosyncratic um, things we're doing each day and and as we leave institutions um, more and more we're losing that sense of belonging and that sense of of who our people are and and the research shows how important that is um, one simple thing parents can do tonight at dinner is start telling your children stories about their ancestors mm -hmm. whatever stories you have grandparents great-grandparents whoever came here to the United States first, stories of struggle, stories of success, stories of having to work really hard. Um, there's research from Emory. There's a professor named Marshall Duke who studied something called the intergenerational self. And what that is, is a sense a child has that they are part of a long line of people and that they are not just some, you know, random person floating around in 2018. They actually come from this long line of people who worked really hard to get here and, and sort of passed certain things down through the family line. 
And the kids who have a stronger intergenerational self are more resilient when faced with challenges in their lives. And again, I think, you know, if you are being raised in a religious um, household, you might be able to call on, say, Judaism or um, you know, Mormonism or whatever that, that faith is that you have to, to kind of get a, a multi-generational self and to feel like you're part of this rich history. For kids like mine, you know, it's going to have to come from a different a source. And so we can look at our ancestors and, and that can be a really uh, helpful way to get kids to feel like, at least even through time, um, they are not alone. And then, you know, within the present day, it's so important to reach out around us and to find a people because, um, you know, we just human nature is that we, we love to belong. And in fact, the research shows that all those benefits that people get from religion are heavily tied to the community um, aspect of religion. They looked at, um, one study looked at people who go to church and sit in the back row and don't know a lot of people versus those who go and they're part of the different groups and they go to the book club and they stay after for the potluck. Um, they have radically different um, experiences in terms of all those um, measures, the happiness and, and the well-being and the long life and all of that. It's the people that are really connected that do the best. And so how can we use that information in, in our lives? And is it your neighborhood? I, I'm fortunate to live in a neighborhood that's steeped in a long history of, um, you know, political engagement and public service. And so we have sort of this identity in our neighborhood. You may not have that. And so can you find the people at your kid's school or, um, I don't know, other parents from the soccer team who share some of your values? And can you get together one? a month and have a potluck or you know figure out ways that um you can create these communities of shared values mm. there's one, one family i know here in in chicago and every friday they get together for uh, a, a secular shabbat dinner and it was you know started with they light some candles they don't really do any of the jewish prayer and it's families of all different faiths and no faith at all anyone can come just bring some food <laughs> And that's their people, and their kids are growing up together, um, doing this thing outside of, of organized religion, but a really nice way to keep that feeling of community alive. Mm -hmm. Connection and community are so important. And at this time when we feel like so often we're hurried, we're running from one thing to the next, we're often overscheduled, it feels like there's a lot of homework, there's uh, a lot of activities that anyone can feel disconnected. Anyone can feel like they're going through life kind of passing by people and not looking them in the face considering technology and whereas there is some level of connection with many but sometimes little connection with few. So I, I really understand what you're saying and I think it's quite valid that you create your community and sometimes it's not done for us in a religion, in a religious sense at a particular place. 
uh, other than what you know we create on our own, that we can bring people into our homes, we can connect with people in our community, and then create a sense of belonging simply by bringing together people who are like-minded or who you really enjoy being with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's key to create a feeling of sacredness mm. of that, that this is the thing we do that we're not going to stop doing because mm. we have something else going on or we, we just don't feel like it. I think that's sort of the modern way is to cancel or yes. check out or feel like, oh, well, I don't really have time for that. I think the key is to find a group that really wants to make this sacred and really thinks, you know, unless I have the flu and I can't get out of bed, um, I'm coming and I'm going to be there. And I think that religions thrived through the millennia because people were willing to pay the cost and time, you know, to go and do the rituals and sit there and, and, you know, and, and there was a payoff for that. There were all these people and there were all these rituals and, um, but there's a trade-off. It doesn't come without effort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that idea of sacredness and, you know, saying that you will be there because people depend on you if you're creating that community. And truthfully, of course, we depend on them because we are getting that sense of belonging and community by being together, that you are important, that you are valuable in this community and we want you to be there and you want to be there. That's, it's a beautiful thing. So I would love to go back to the conversation that you had with your son that you talked about in the beginning of the book, but also on this call, you said you were having this call, this discussion with your child when you began this whole journey that he asked, what are we? And you said, we are nothing. So if I was to grant you a redo and your child asked that same question, what are we? What does this mean? You know, who are we? What would you say? That's a great question. And I, I feel like I spent the whole book trying to figure out what I would say uh, and all those years and all those interviews, um, really seeking a better answer for my, my son and my two daughters as well. And at the end of the book, I wrote a letter to them. And I listed 10 things that I want them to know, um, things that I value and believe in. And, you know, maybe when they're older, they'll have their own 10 things. But I wanted to know, I wanted them to know what their mother thought was important about life and how to live it. And so, um, you know, some of those things in that letter, again, they're at the end of the book. But, um, you know, a few of them are, your life is a privilege um, and you should live it well and you should find your people and you should learn the religious stories and the stories of the doubters as well, because those are all part of your heritage and you should um, make time for awe and wonder in your life. And if you do that, your life will be more meaningful. And if you seek work and connections um, that give you a sense of being larger and you're just yourself, then your life will have purpose in, in it. And so um, I think one of the things, one of the realizations I came to at the end of the book was there wasn't really an answer for my son's question because we don't necessarily think that way anymore. 
um, it used to be easy to say, um, I'm Catholic, mm-hmm. or I'm Jewish, or I'm Methodist. And these days, um, there's just so many variations, and there's so many different ways that people are making up um, sort of their rituals and their beliefs and their lives, so that it's hard to answer in a simple mm-hmm. um, one word. So I wrote the letter kind of explaining maybe instead of talking about a label, let's talk about what's underneath labels. Let's talk about what it means to be a human being who's thinking and questioning and, and striving to be a better person. And that's a long answer. So mm. it, doesn't, it doesn't fit easily. Um, you know, I thought it was funny one day, my daughter, who's a little younger than my son, she's now 11, uh, about a year or two ago, she said, well, I'm part Christian, part Jewish, you know, that's me and my husband, and part gymnastics, because <laughs> <laughs> she's on a gymnastics team. And I really think that that um, encapsulates how a lot of us feel these days. Oftentimes, parents are marrying people from, you know, other faiths, and, and so kids are having to make up an identity that's new and different. And so maybe the questions we, my son asked wasn't really answerable in the old way. Right. 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 And there's so much more to our answers these days, you know, beyond that one word, you know, because even if I said I'm Jewish, it means mm-hmm. different things to different people. So I love the idea of expanding on that, perhaps writing a letter. Really, that could be for any parent. Who are we and what kind of family are we and what kind of character do we believe in? What is important to mom or to dad or to whomever is running the family? What, mm-hmm. what are your values and what do you hope your children learn from you? And what do you hope that they explore on their own? I mean, there's so many great questions for them to explore and and to discover the answers for themselves. So I, I think it's just a beautiful way of answering that question. And I certainly appreciate your approach uh, to raising children with all of these questions around us and not always knowing every answer. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, people have joked that it's like a secular Ten Commandments because there are ten of them. And I didn't mean it that way at all, but I do think it's a great exercise. It was great for me. Can you boil down into ten items? And some of them are longer than others, but ten items that really capture what you want your kids to to know um and i you know i know you had um rick weisford on your show recently and i interviewed him for my book and he said when he interviewed kids and he interviewed parents about what parents wanted from their kids they gave different answers the kids said we the parents said we want our kids to be good people and kind to others and the kids said my parents want me to do well in school that's right that's right and I think that parents really have to look closely and maybe doing this exercise is helpful in that. Like, are you walking your talk? Mm-hmm. And are you really um, showing your kids that you want them to be kind people in the world? And if so, how are you showing them that? Yes, yes. <laughs> so important. And thank you for pay- to, for bringing up Rick Weisbord because he's genius. He yes. um, 
runs Making Caring Common at Harvard, and he is he's just a wealth of information. And yes, um, th- th- that's what he talks about and also has done studies around it, <laughs> that that parents are uh, giving kids the notion that school and their performance academically and possibly in in sports and in other arenas are much more important than being good people and being kids of character. So it is important to highlight that and to ask yourself, what do I really want my children to know? And what do I really want my kids to learn uh, of about being a person here on earth at this time. You know, what do I want them to be? Because I think that if we look back after we've raised our children and, you know, we look back and we say to ourselves, what, you know, wh- who do I want to create here? Who am I hoping to um, show how to live this beautiful life we probably are not hoping that our kids well at least they're good students Mm -hmm. at the end of the day we we there's so much more to that so thank you for bringing that up because that is incredibly important and meaningful for anybody whether or not they are raising their children with religion or without at this point Yeah, and I saw a wonderful um, vision of this in action. I visited a coming-of-age ceremony in Northern California. It was a secular coming-of-age ceremony based in a a Zen tradition, but these families were from all backgrounds. And the adolescents basically spend a year studying different values Mm -hmm. in nature. Mm -hmm. So they'll go out each month and with their mentor, uh, they work on a farm or they go into the wilderness on the weekend and each each um, month is devoted to a different value, be it honesty or hard work. And um, I went to the final ceremony, and at the ceremony, these twenty teenagers come into the room. It's a it's a very elaborately organized ritual, which I think is important to have a few of those too. And the questions they are asked they are asked two questions. One is, um, what is what is the thing about you that makes you unique? And then what is your gift to the world? Mm -hmm. And each child stands up. They're probably about 14 years old or 15, just right on that edge. And, and they, they profess what they hope to give the world. And I thought while I was watching that, I've never asked my children that, you know, I've never said, what are you going to give the world? Often it's, what can I give you? Right. (laughs) What are you getting um, out of your coach or out of your teacher? Um, and to flip that and to go back to more of a, a communal mentality of thinking about how are you a part of this bigger yes. thing and what are you going to contribute to it was incredibly moving. Oh, I can imagine. And what an important question, looking at your child and having them realize what their strengths and gifts are, because we want our children to realize that they are here for a reason and that without them, we do not get to get a glimpse of the amazing gift that they bring to this world. I often talk about when I'm presenting to businesses or schools, I talk about being a strength finder rather than a fault finder. How can we highlight our children's strengths no matter who they are or how different they are from us? 
how can we help to highlight their strengths so that they know their gifts and understand that only they could give that gift to the world so that they can own that gift and and understand its true value. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And and I think rituals are a wonderful way to do that. You know, a lot of, mm-hmm. of kids in this program, um, their parents had been raised Jewish, and so they had had a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, or they'd been raised Catholic, and so they'd been through confirmation. And so... Uh, here was an opportunity to mark that special moment in time in a secular way. But anyone can do that. I mean, you could just, you know, go to a restaurant and invite a bunch of friends mm-hmm. of the family. Or, you know, one one dad told me he had all of his um, friends write a letter to his son upon graduating from mm-hmm. high school. Mm-hmm. And he made a book out of it. Yes. And so there was a book of life lessons for this child and and things that he could use and feel like part of this community that, that he is now stepping up to. Oh, what a beautiful idea. And I bet you people are jotting that one down. <laughs> That's a wonderful idea. And I think I may use that one. Uh, I'd love it. Uh, thank you so much. What is your top tip out of all the things we've either talked about or or perhaps haven't talked about yet what would you say is your top tip to raising a child who gets the meaning the purpose the belonging in a secular age the top tip i would say is living in the questions. Um, I I just feel like that's opening a door to a huge new way of thinking. Um, And I I think that it's it's necessary because I think the religious nature of America is changing so rapidly right now. Um, And in many ways, we should be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, there are a lot of wonderful things that religion has provided um, through millennia. And I think that um, we should be looking at very consciously what aspects of religion do we miss? Um, what are we lacking now that we're more individualized? And how can we find them um, and bring them in, into our lives more, religious or non-religious? Mm-hmm. And I think part of the problem with today's age is we want a quick answer to everything. Yes. You know, and we want a black and white answer. So, uh, you know, a lot of the people in the non-religious community just think religion is ridiculous, you know, and a lot of people in the religious community think, you know, anyone who's not religious is going to hell. And Mm -hmm. and so when you're living in the questions, there's no room for that. Um, You are really um, living a, a curious life potentially full of wonder because of everything you see as an opportunity for growth. Everything you see is opportunity for connection. And so that's sort of my sort of umbrella, I guess, for all of the ideas I try to encapsulate in my book. Mm-hmm. It's, it's beautiful and wonderful. And I'm so, I'm so glad to have you on. And I know people are going to want to have more information about you and your book. So could you give us the resource of the week, please? 
Sure. Well, my um, book, everything about my book, including um, a reading group guide like for a book club and and even some exercises for coming up with those 10 um, items that you want to share with your kids are all on my website. Um, it's katherineosment.com, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-O-Z-M-E-N-T. Uh, and you can reach me, you can contact me through there if you have specific questions. Um, and in my book, there's a huge section of resources at the end with very specific um, organizations and books to read for all different ages of kids and also for the parents. And so I think that, you know, there's just a wealth of information out there and I tried to bring it all together in one place. Well, it seems like you've done a wonderful job and I couldn't be more grateful for having you on the show today. I thought that was fascinating. I, I was so thought provoking. I, I loved listening to it. Um, even, you know, it doesn't matter what religion you are or not religion. It's just, it, it's such an interesting way of looking at life. And I think that everybody can get something from what you've written in the book and what you have up on your website. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. We can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash drrobin. And I'm on Instagram now and I'm just starting to put all the memes up and quotes up from our fabulous guests. And that's under Dr. Robin Silverman on Instagram. And I'm having the best time. So come on over. And if you love this podcast like I do, I hope you would go up to iTunes and rate and review it. It allows people to learn more about my podcast, which is so helpful to me, but it also allows people to learn about our fabulous guests, their incredible books, and it helps them, those people grow and learn and get all the tips you're getting. So it's good all the way around. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's all the time we have, my fellow parents, leaders, and educators. Thank you for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts up there. The show notes will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when we fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information information you need. I know it's not always easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. We can go back. We can say, I'm sorry. We can do it again. I see you. I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet, sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.